Hi, I'm your host, Susan Nay. Welcome to the podcast series, HR Inside Out. It's a series designed to help you demystify HR and the human resource processes. We're going to talk about people management and get the goods on and see how all this stuff works. You're going to hear from everyday heroes and get their perspectives as we touch on a wide variety of topics, topics that impact us in our work and in our work environments. You'll find nuggets for your treasure chest of learning. Hopefully you'll discover insights for your personal and your professional growth. I'm glad you're here. I suspect it's because you want to be the very best version of yourself, your personal best, and that you get understanding these systems and processes will help you on your journey, on your path. You ready to dare to soar? Want to join me at flight school? Let's do this. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, welcome to the podcast series, HR Inside Out, Demystifying HR and People Management. Today, I welcome author, keynote speaker, and consultant, John Izzo. John, thank you for agreeing to be a guest on today's podcast. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you about two of your books, Stepping Up, How Taking Responsibility Changes Everything, and The Purpose Revolution, How Leaders Create Engagement and Competitive Advantage in an Age of Social Good. Before we jump in, I'd like to share a little bit about you with our listeners. Is that okay? Sure. Great. And, and, and thank you, Susan, for having me on your podcast. <laughs> Thanks very much. So John is a best-selling author of nine books, books that include the international bestsellers, Awakening Corporate Soul, Values Shift, The Five Secrets You Must Discover Before You Die, Stepping Up, The Five Thieves of Happiness, and his newest book, The Purpose Revolution. I have every one of them. They're excellent and available on Amazon. John recently also offered a book club opportunity around stepping up and um, a course based on the, I think the theories and the purpose revolution. I participated in both and well, I hope you offer them again. They're both fabulous and worth registering for. A little bit more about John. Over the last 20 years, John's spoken to over a million people. He's taught at two major universities, advised over 500 organizations, and is frequently featured in the media by the likes of Fast Company, PBS, CBC, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, and Inc. Magazine. He's advised some of the best companies in the world, including DuPont, Telus, McDonald's, Ford, WestJet, RBC, Lockheed Martin, Qantas Airlines, Humana, Microsoft, Manulife, VMware, and the Mayo Clinic. He's been a pioneer in the corporate social responsibility and sustainability movements, and is on the advisory board of Sustainable Brands. He's an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia, where he's co-founder of Blueprint, and we're going to hear more about that later. Through the two sessions that I recently attended, I learned that John at one point worked for the city of San Diego. He has a doctoral degree in organizational communication. He's done a solo Camino de Santiago journey, at least one, and shared those experiences via social media. That was fascinating. He's an ordained Presbyterian minister and occasionally ministers at the Canadian Memorial United Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. He was recently on a podcast with Beth Hayward of Soul to Soul, and that was excellent and very involved in Blueprint. He's a man of many talents, and he's a man who both steps up and is a huge purpose in progress always. Thank you again for saying yes and allowing both me and the listeners to learn further from you. I'm going to start by asking, why the books? 
uh, what led you to write, write on the topics of both stepping up and purpose? Hmm. Really good question. I guess the first question is why write at all? <laughs> hmm? So, uh, which I ask every time I'm writing a book. Like if you <laughs> asked me like when I began, would I write nine of these? I don't know what I would have said, but I do remember as a, as a young child, I, I loved to tell stories. I loved stories. I loved hearing stories. It was always important to me to make the world a better place. I was kind of a do-gooder by nature. I don't really know why. Um, uh, I came from a fairly religious family, so I think the idea of making the world a little better was hardwired, but also I think just my nature. I don't know why. What always interested me was uh, to have more kindness and compassion in the world. And so, um, so I remember even as a child, I remember I wrote a, a, a part of a play when I was like maybe 10 years old. And I remember uh -huh. reading, out, reading it out loud and everyone making fun of it because there was a line in it, Bill is dead, Bill is dead. And, and I remember my Aunt Evelyn, who was kind of amused for me, my mother's uh, younger sister said, now leave him alone, leave him alone. Like he's really <laughs> passionate about this. And so I don't know, I mean, I guess I always... Um, uh, wanted my voice to be in the world in some way that would make things better. And uh, I just, each time that, you know, every time I write a book, I think I'm, I, that's it. There's nothing more I have to say. And then guess what? I, I keep learning and there's more I have to say. I guess the final thought on that, Susan, one of my mentors, Trudy Sop, uh, said to me, we teach what we most need to learn. Hmm. So I guess uh, when I'll stop writing is when I don't have anything more <laughs> frontiers for myself, then I'll just play tennis. But for now, I seem to keep finding things that I want to say. So. And I love your stories, because you do integrate those into uh, each of the books that you've written. One of the stories actually from stepping up was around the five rows of responsibility. I, that would be a great place to start as we venture into some of the messages within uh, the two books. Can you share that story with our listeners? Sure. It, uh, you know, it's, interesting, it's interesting, Susan. It's a story that uh, I've been telling for many years, uh, about a decade before um, I wrote the first uh, edition of Stepping Up. But um, it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful story about a very simple experience I had on a late night flight uh, leaving Cleveland, Ohio on a winter snowy day in which I was like the last, literally the last person to get on the plane. And they ushered me to my, my uh, seat in row six. I had a middle seat because I'd missed the earlier flight. So I'm crammed in and, and, uh, and uh, you know, the plane was delayed because of the ice and the snow. And, and the moment I sat down, the two people on each of my side in the, 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 the aisle and the window started complaining. Our aisle and the window, yes, started complaining. The one woman started complaining about her boss and how he was not a very good boss and he was sending her up to this godforsaken place where they never buy anything and they never will. And the, 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 the person on the other side was uh, complaining about, I don't even remember what, what they were complaining about, but the guy across the aisle from us then heard us compl them complaining and then started complaining about the airline and it was a lousy airline and they lost his bags last week and there's ice on these wings. We're probably going to die on this <laughs> thing. I mean, it was like this, like sea of negativity. And, uh, and I'm a pretty optimistic guy, but I realized, my God, I'm going to spend the next, you know, hour and 45 minutes with these folks. Uh, and so finally the plane takes off and, you know, um, 
And but the mood continues, and it's like the eighth flight of the day for the flight attendants, so they're kind of in a bad <laughs> mood too. I remember they were kind of throwing the cellophane wrapped roast beef sandwiches at us, you know, as they in those days you still got something for free on airplanes. And the guy across the aisle, like, literally slowly unwrapped his cellophane and he took a sniff of the sandwich and he rang his flight attendant button and called her back and complain. Anyway, you get the idea. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so, you know, about like 45 minutes into the flight, food is done. There was this little boy in the bulkhead seat who he was probably about two years, a little over two years old. And all during the first part of the flight, he was trying to stand on his mother's lap so he could look over the seat. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't, he didn't quite get it. Like for the first 40 minutes of the flight, you saw his hair, his <laughs> eyebrows a few times, but never like his actual face. So finally, just after the, the kind of bad sandwich incident, uh, he finally popped his head up, lifted himself up, put his chin on the seat and almost like a chipmunk. As soon as he saw all of us, he just smiled this most natural, beautiful mm. smile. It's almost like he didn't realize we were all in the plane with him, right? It's like, oh, wow, look at all those people. <laughs> and uh, I'm not exaggerating. Within a minute, he transformed the five rows behind him. Anyone who could see that little boy, the bad sandwich guy, the woman complaining about her boss, suddenly lit up and just kind of got in a better mood. The woman next to me said, go get him. You know, we need to borrow him for a while. We need his energy. So I literally went up and said to his mom, can we have him for a few minutes? We need him. And she said, he's all yours. And I won't exaggerate for, you know, maybe three or four minutes. He was dancing and happy. And even the two grumpy flight attendants and coach came and like were smiling. And it was such a simple experience, but I had this profound moment of epiphany. I realized most of us only influence about five rows. Uh, Mm. in the world, right? Most of us never going to change the world. But in those five rows, we have tremendous power about what happens in those five rows. And that just by showing up differently, we have the power to transform the five rows around us. And maybe, just maybe, the whole world is just a bunch of five rows. So an organization Mm -hmm. is just a bunch of five rows. A city, a neighborhood is just a bunch of five rows. And every problem in the world from global warming to bullying to, you know, surviving a pandemic and with and crushing the curve are about each person in their five rows asking, what part am I playing and what can I do? And it was a moment of tremendous insight for me. And I've always kind of thought of it as a seminal story about my work is really about getting people to think more carefully about how they're showing up in the five rows of their life and the impact they could have if they showed up differently. So it's a beautiful story, simple but beautiful story. And it so encourages us to do something, you know, to, to impact those five rows, the, the stuff yeah, that's around yeah. us. I, I, I loved it. And what I love the most is he, he mostly, he just showed up being himself, mm-hmm. his optimistic, happy self. And in that process, he challenged each one of us to find that in, in ourselves, right? So. Yeah, I remember working with someone who brought that to the office every mm-hmm. single day, and what a difference it made! Yeah. It just it it really did. Yeah, you know, it, it really gets to at a question. I've, as you know, I've spent a lot of my lifetime working with formal leaders, right, and mm-hmm. and informal leaders, and I always say like, you can't tell if someone's a leader by looking at their business card or, you know, 
the way you know someone is a leader is that the room is better when they're in it. Mm-hmm. And even better leader if when they leave, the room is still better. And, and it doesn't matter what your position is in a company. Ask yourself, if the room is better because I'm in it and after I leave it, then, then I'm probably a leader. And if it mm. isn't true, then you're not a leader no matter what your title is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So true. And, and you can feel that energy. It's, it's quite yeah. lovely. Yeah, uh, I know just in the book club and in the session with the Purpose Revolution, how it was lovely just learning with the other leaders mm-hmm. in your course too and in the book club of just that, that lovely energy of people who mm-hmm. are making it their interest in life to step up and create change, positive change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's stepping up, and I'm going to quote an internal and it sort of continues on this locus of control is positively correlated with happiness, success, and initiative. While an external locus of control is related to anxiety and depression. And then you go on, it's pretty clear that most organizations and society as a whole would be better off if most more of us believed that we could change things. Can you talk a little bit more about the research, the correlations? And um, I know you've worked with, as, mm-hmm. as, your introduction noted many, many organizations. Well, you know, um, uh, uh, I stumbled a number of years ago onto uh, some research by uh, a psychologist named Rodder, who in 1957, the year that I was born, um, uh, came up with a little scale to measure whether people had an internal or an external locus of control. I've come to coin them innies versus outies. (laughs) <laughs> and pretty much what he discovered is that there were kind of two different orientations to the world. Uh, there was an, uh, an external locus of control where people pretty much figured whatever happened to them was because of external things. And there was another orientation, this internal locus of control, where people figured that whatever's happening in their life, they probably helped manifest it and therefore could probably do something to change it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I come to call those innies versus outies, right? And, uh, and then over these last like 60 plus years, a lot of research has been done about what happens when people have this internal versus an external locus of control. And as you said, it turns out people with an internal locus of control are happier, are healthier, are more likely to stay and be happy in a relationship, you know, are more likely to be promoted, you know, lots of things that, that we care about, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I, the way I boil it down to its simplest is I always tell people in my talks, um, the world is neither any or outy. <laughs> So sometimes you're a salesperson and the deck is stacked against you. You're in a bad market or a bad, you know, um, you know, got a bad product. Sometimes your partner is more of the problem in your relationship than you are. Sometimes your boss did have a favorite uh, in terms of the promotion and you weren't it. But the world is neither in or outy. Um, but, but if we focus on the part that we can control in every situation that we are in, Mm-hmm. We not only will feel more powerful, but of course we will be more successful and happy because since we can't control the external variables mm-hmm. and we can control the denominator, which is us, then I'm going to be a lot happier and more successful if I focus on the things I can control. So it's almost like common sense, right? If you mm-hmm. think about it. Mm-hmm. And it turns out 
that, uh, you know, even in sales, for example, I work with sales uh, leaders often, is that a big study was done in the United States that showed one attribute of the most successful salespeople is they almost never focus on the external variables that are in the way of their success because they know those are the same for every salesperson. So instead, mm. they don't focus on those at all. They just said, well, what can I control? And I think it's, uh, again, it, to me, it's just a common sense thing. And of course, the world would be a lot better if each one of us, uh, you know, um, uh, just wherever we were said, what can I do? Um, however small or large that is, because mm -hmm. you'll be happier. And because, of course, more will get done if each of us says, what can I do? So fascinating yeah. piece of research by this guy named Rodder. Uh, I'd like to think I've made him just a little more famous than he was before. <laughs> uh, you have with me anyways. You also talk about when, when you do step up, when you want to initiate change, that it, it actually inspires others, mm -hmm. that people are generally better at following than leading. Have, have you found that? You know, it sounds like in the work that you've mm -hmm. done, uh, you actually see that. Um, any examples? Yeah. When, like, when we wrote the first edition of Stepping Up and just did this, the first edition was written, I think in 2010. And it's the only time I've done a second edition of a book, just published uh, last year. Uh, and uh, and I, the reason I did it, I wrote it, the only time I've ever done a second edition is I said, well, first of all, I've learned a lot about stepping up in the last decade. And second, the message is more relevant, I think, even than when I wrote it, you know, uh, wrote it the, uh, the, the first time. But, you know, to me, um, you know, uh, that see... I forgot your question. It's terrible. What was Just the question again? That, that when, when you do step up, that you actually oh, yes, inspire yes, others, I, right? That you I remember encourage now, others. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, I, knew, I knew I was going somewhere with that. <laughs> is that um, when I wrote the first edition of the book, we surveyed a thousand people and we asked them this question. Why don't you step up more in your life? Take more action about things that you care about. Number one reason was people said, I'm only one person. It won't matter if I step up. Mm. So I think the greatest challenge for many of us to step up is that we think, well, what does it really matter if I step up? And in the book, I talk about two reasons why stepping up matters more than we think. First, and you alluded to it, because every time someone steps up, it creates what I call a responsibility ripple. Mm. It challenges others to step up. And in the book, I share lots of stories of that in business and outside. But a simple example, you know, two kids I feature in the book who stood up to one bully who had bullied a kid because he'd worn a pink shirt. Uh, they decided to come the next day wearing pink. They challenged their friends to wear pink. Turns out like 200 kids showed up wearing pink. Eventually, it challenged other kids all over Canada to start wearing pink. Now there's pink shirt days in 26 countries around the world to stand up to bullies because one day a decade ago, two 16-year-olds just decided to step up. They created what I call the ripple. In a relationship, let's say there's not enough civility in your romantic relationship or not enough romance, right? Uh, don't go out and buy a book on being romantic or civil <laughs> and give it to your partner. You start being more civil. You mm. start bringing romance into the relationship. And guess what? It has the potential to create a ripple. The second thing is what I call aggregate influence. Mm. 
So I'll give you an example in my personal life. One of the issues I've been caring about for almost two decades now is plastic in the oceans. And mm -hmm. long before a lot of people were thinking about this, I, I started cleaning up plastic and connecting with people around plastic and gave up plastic water bottles and plastic shopping bags and plastic straws, you know, almost, you know, 15 years ago now. Um, but one of the interesting things is that that choice that I made honestly made no difference in the world. But when millions of people make that same choice, the aggregate impact is mm. tremendous. Yeah. And I think people forget the power of aggregate influence, that while my individual action may not matter, that all great change happens because millions of individuals change. That's why I often say, whether it's in an organization or in a society, there is no such thing as organizational change. There is no such thing as societal change. What happens is when enough individuals change in an organization or in society, we get a societal shift. Fascinating yeah. research, by the way, has been done on zebras and other herd animals about how do they decide to move to another place? Mm -hmm. And I talk about this research in, the, in the, the second edition of the book. So when they first started studying this, they thought, well, there must be a zebra leader. Like, you know, that like when yeah, yeah. the zebra decides <laughs> to move, then all the zebra move. Well, it turns out the truth is more beautiful than that. It turns out like one zebra starts to think, oh, if we should hang out here anymore. And they get a little antsy. <laughs> and then another zebra kind of catches that energy and goes, yeah, I'm okay. And then eventually enough zebra are feeling that energy that the whole herd shifts. Wow. Totally leaderless. Yeah. And I like to think that's the way most human change. Now, sometimes leaders are catalysts, but even then they're usually connecting to the zeitgeist that's already happening rather yeah. than creating yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Wow. Cool examples. Thank you. And I'm going to go back to talking about, because often people see that there's constraints or obstacles. Mm -hmm. um, and you talk about if we decide to work with whatever deck we've been dealt with, like those salespeople, and go from there, that we will accomplish much more. And that it is we that may, needs to, to make that decision, um, that it's us as individuals. And I think some of the examples that you've just shared mm -hmm. actually are... Um, perfect to illustrate that. Yeah, you know, um, as you know, in the book and in my work now for the last several decades, the probably stickiest concept I've ever shared with people is a simple concept called the 100-0 principle. 100% responsibility, zero excuses. And uh, it's a very sticky concept. By last count, I think about 200 companies that I know of are like using it all over the world. Some because they work with me and many just because they read my book or saw a video on mm -hmm. YouTube. And what's interesting about the concept is that the 100% responsibility people like immediately get. Yep. If I take 100% responsibility for employee engagement, for my happiness, for my career, for the success of every customer, et cetera, the world's going to be better, right? And so is my company and probably my life. But the zero excuses often gets a different reaction. People go, no, just wait a minute, John. <laughs> Sometimes there are legitimate reasons why, you know, this mm -hmm. or that. 
And, and it caused me to get a corollary principle to the 100 zero that I didn't use when I first started sharing it, which is that some excuses are true, but none of them are useful. Mm. And what I mean by that is that when we focus on the barriers, the things we don't have, while they may be true, they're not useful. So if I focus, for example, on the fact that my store is not in a neighborhood with great foot traffic, I can sit around and focus on that all day long. But if I can't change it, I'm better to say, well, what can I do with what I have? Right. And so, uh, you know, excuses are, are often true, but focusing on them is never useful because it puts us into a place of disempowerment. And that's where I get this idea that you say, well, what can I do with the deck of cards that I have? And, you know, my wife is a great poker player. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a good poker player. She's a great poker player. And, you know, you know, it's like that Kenny Rogers song, every hand's a winner and every hand's a loser. And a great poker player will tell you that's true because while some people may have a better, you know, hand, some people know how to play that hand better than others. And I think life and business are kind of that way, too. Some people say, what am I going to do with the deck that I've been, that the hand that I've been given? Mm -hmm. How can I work with that deck? No excuses. Yeah. I, I know you've got some excellent stories uh, in stepping up that, that expand on that. In previous podcasts, I've been speaking with individuals about employee engagement mm -hmm. and the use of surveys to assess employee mm -hmm. engagement. And you note in stepping up that when the numbers come back from those surveys, just imagine if all team members asked both how they had contributed to the level of engagement and how they could make things better. Have you experienced this happening? People taking personal responsibilities within organizations um, around, uh, not only working to increase their own engagement, but that of others? Yeah, you know, um, I, I, uh, uh, first, a couple of comments about employee surveys, right? Of course, I kind of made my name in many ways around employee engagement when I wrote my first book in 1994, Awakening Corporate Soul. And, uh, and so that's kind of the world that I come from, still do a lot of work, I suppose, in, generally in that space. And one of the things about um, employee surveys is here's how most companies do the surveys. They do the survey, then they then the leader comes back and says to the team, uh, either I, they're either defending or they say, I got the message, I will go and work on these things. What mm -hmm. do I need to do in order to like for you to be more engaged? But it's actually very dysfunctional in a funny way because the idea that the leader alone has created the level of engagement is a fallacy, right? Mm -hmm. We all have, now the leader has a disproportionate influence. I'm not letting the leader off the hook. Mm -hmm. but, but that's why in the book, I asked that provocative question. What if each one of us says, I helped contribute to those numbers? Whatever those numbers are, I am a part of that. And, uh, and so I have seen places where uh, team members do that. One of my favorite stories in Stepping Up is about a large medical uh, system uh, and center in Sioux City, Iowa, that was a client of mine, run by a great CEO, Pete Mikowski. Pete came and they were in the dumps, uh, clinically great hospital. The, but the word on the street was, if you're really sick, go to Mercy. If you want to be cared for, go somewhere else, right? Low employee engagement, not a lot of compassion. Great, mm -hmm. great. Clinically, you know, the surgery <laughs> will get done. You'll survive, but it won't be a good experience. Mm -hmm. 
And Pete was a really good CEO trying to turn it around. But the heroic shift really happened when a group of frontline people and middle managers started a, a committee they called the Respiriting Committee. And they didn't get permission. They just started meeting once a week, a group originally, I think there was about 15 of them. And they simply asked the question, what can we do to turn the morale and the service around in this hospital? Not what does the CEO need to do? Not what the, the le other leaders, what do we need to do? And it really led to a heroic transformation for that, that healthcare center in combination with the good CEO. And so I have seen that heroic transformation. Um, and, and the other thing I think around that is, uh, and this is maybe just a tidbit of wisdom. I teach leaders, I don't do, I'm not in the employee survey business, but of course I work with clients who are mm -hmm. doing employee surveys. Here's what I tell them to do. When you get the employee survey numbers back, bring it to the team. Don't spend any time asking, why do we have these numbers? Say, uh, look, here's our numbers. I have no reason to argue that this is the reality, right? So what would we have to do in the, we, all of us have to do, including me in the months ahead, that if, let's say if it's a scale of five, that we could get to five mm -hmm. next time. And let's choose a few areas we want to focus on. They say, well, not enough recognition. Great. What would get us to five? Well, we wish there was more empowerment. Great. What would get us to five? Because by focusing on what we want and what we want to move towards instead of what's wrong, we make more progress. And, you know, so because typically what happens is we say, why did we get a three on recognition? Then, of course, the employees unload on all the problems and all the things that are wrong yeah, and yeah. tries to fix them, maybe. So instead, what would we have to do to get to five? And uh, I think it's a different way of thinking about things. And what do we have to do? Doesn't let the leader off the hook, but mm -hmm. it engages all of us in that question. I love how you're suggesting the going deep. That just that that nope. Give me the suggestions. How do we how do we get there? It's not yeah. just leaving it on the surface. How do we get to five? I've seen yeah. this is true. I'm not going to defend whatever the numbers yeah. are. Like, yeah. This is the reality. What do we yeah. need to do? We all want a five, don't we? Let's, yeah. What do we have to do to get to five? Yeah. And then the example with the hospital of how that was very, very effective. You've also talked in stepping up about one of our greatest enemies to creating real change is that we feel we need to have a plan to start to act. And that your best advice, if you want to change things, is to just get started, to do something, to do anything. This goes against so much of what we're taught. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about why? Yeah, well, well, first, I think in every endeavor in life, the first step is almost always the hardest one. Because we stand at the edge of whatever frontier we're on, trying to, edge of the forest, if you will, and we try to Imagine the entire path, all the problems we might encounter, et cetera. And that's especially true when it comes to stepping up, trying to change something that you care about, whether it's in your team, in a relationship, in an organization, in your neighborhood, in your city. Um, but the reality is uh, most of the time, it's not until we get into the forest that the steps become evident to us. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is action breeds action. It's like physics, a body in motion tends to stay in motion, right? So once we do something, do anything, what happens is we're now in action mode. 
The second thing is we start to create that ripple that mm -hmm. challenges others. Second, um, allies start to show up when we do something, when we do anything. And the, you know, as you know, in the book, Stepping Up, I feature a lot of true inspiring stories, most stories of which people will never have heard about, about people who stepped up. And one of the things you'll see is almost always allies show up once you take a step. But someone has to take a step, one thing. What's one thing I can do? Mm -hmm. And it's very empowering. What's, so let's say I want to become an entrepreneur. What's one thing I can do? I want to uh, you know, improve a relationship. What's one thing I can do? And so this idea of do something, do anything. And I found that most of the people who even wound up accomplishing great things, who I interviewed in the book, didn't have a plan when they began. Now, I'm not against planning. Mm -hmm. It's good to have planning. Mm -hmm. But it's not good to wait until you have a plan to do something, because that can become the excuse to do nothing. Mm. And doing nothing breeds doing more nothing. <laughs> that <makes laughs> okay. Sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you also talk about when you lead beyond your position, mm -hmm. that we become influential in ways that you've, we've never imagined. And your examples uh, really illustrate that. Um, yeah, and, and one of my favorite chapters in the book is leadership is not a position, right? Mm -hmm. I always say to young people, sometimes they say to me now, when they finally give me a position of authority around here, I'll show them what I'm made of. And I say, well, I have a better idea. How about like you show them what you can do without having yeah. a position, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the things I, I interviewed a lot of CEOs for stepping up. And uh, I love what one of them said, the former um, uh, president of the Liquor Board of Ontario, Bob Peter, who had also been the president of Hudson's Bay. And re he really took this government retail, liquor retailer from like a, you know, kind of just a government, you know, kind of liquor store to a top end retailer in the time that he was the CEO. And he said, you know, these people who step up and are always challenging things and working out of their position, you know, they're <laughs> a real pain in the neck. He said, but these are the people I always promote mm. because they make things happen. Right? Mm -hmm. Speaking of making things happen, mm. I'd love to hear a little bit more about Blueprint, mm. an initiative mm. that you're very much involved in out of the University of British Columbia. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Susan, I feel like I've spent a lot of my life telling other people to step up and do things. And I've done, I think, a lot of things in my life, but mostly I've been an advisor and inspirer. And then uh, five years ago now, my uh, friend, uh, David Cool, who is a physician and author and a professor at the University of British Columbia, um, uh, uh, challenged me to join him in an endeavor uh, called Blueprint. And uh, we both realized at the time that um, men were a major public health issue uh, mm. in the world, that uh, men were both uh, contributing to suffering. And of course, we all know the ways in which men have disproportionately contributed to suffering, uh, more likely to commit sexual assault and violence, more likely to desert their families or have poor relationships with their kids. Uh, more likely to be at the center of exclusion in many cases and not, you know, inclusion. What wasn't talked about as much is that men were also suffering, that men were more likely to die from suicide, more likely to be addicted and homeless, that men were graduating at lower and lower rates compared with women, 
that in many ways that men were both contributing to suffering and suffering, mm-hmm. and therefore were both a major public health issue and a societal issue. And also what we realized is that over the last 30 years that rightly so, a great deal has been done to develop women and girls all over the world. And it had to be done and we're not done yet to give them more opportunity for equity, for education, for development. But we all kind of forgot about the men. We thought, well, the men, you know, what do we need to do about the men? And we see now the consequences of not having had a new blueprint, if you will, Mm. for what it means to be a man. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we set out in a provocative journey to say, what would it mean to create a new blueprint for men to research what was happening with men and boys and their relationship with other genders? Mm -hmm. What could make men more well and make men do more good? And uh, as far as we know, we're the only university-based effort like us in the world because we have no academic programs. We teach no classes. All of our work while we're based in the university is out in the world, Mm -hmm. creating programs for athletes, for firefighters, Mm -hmm. for police officers, for business executives, researching what is happening with men in terms of their well-being and and them doing more good. Mm-hmm. And how can we create a new vision of masculinity, a new blueprint that is more pro-social, both for men and for, uh, for the benefit of a more sustainable, inclusive, and compassionate world? Wow. Now I and understand. I, and, you know, I've spent all these years advising people who are starting up companies, and now I got to start one up, and I want to apologize to them. It was a lot harder than I thought it was <laughs> from the outside. <laughs> I always I wondered about the blueprint, the title of the group. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. And I'll make sure that on the show notes for the podcast that there's uh, contact information if people are interested in learning more about blueprint. Yeah, yeah. And, and just simply the easiest way is go to blueprint.ngo, just blueprint.ngo oh, and they can find out uh, about us. But it's been a great a great journey. And, you know, one of the most encouraging things, Susan, is, and we see ourselves as feminists. People always say, is this a men's rights group? No, no, no. We are fully aligned with our partners in the feminist movement. Uh, We believe in a more equitable, inclusive world for all genders and all people. Uh, We believe we need to continue to focus on on the development uh, and equity for women. Uh, we also believe that um, that uh, that uh, that men need help, and men need to help each other in a different way. And one of the most encouraging things is we wondered how would women react to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, the most beautiful thing is the biggest supporters of ours uh, generally have been women who have sons, mm. because yes. the women who have sons, and by the way, the men who have daughters. So the Mm -hmm. men who have daughters say, well, I want my daughters. And by the way, all three of the co-founders all have daughters, five Mm -hmm. between us, not a son among us. (laughs) Um, Those men who have daughters say, I want a different world for my daughters in terms of the men that they will meet in their lives. And the mothers of sons say, you must do this work because I see this lostness in my sons. I see them struggling to say, what does it mean to be a man and a man of integrity uh, in this time. And so uh, it's been beautiful to see the way people have risen up to, to uh, support us. And a good example of just taking doing anything, because honestly, when we began, we had no money. 
no supporters, just a vision, and allies have have shown up. Wow. Thank you for that incredible work and for sharing with us a little bit more about yeah. uh, what Thank Blueprint. Um, yeah, wow. I just, I want to take us back to the stepping up before we move on to purpose. I'm watching our time a little bit here. Yeah. You have talked about the things that keep people from stepping up. And one of those is about leaders making decisions themselves instead of involving others and about the creation of a climate of fear. Um, and that that often is one of the obstacles that uh, constrains people. Can you talk a little bit more about that from, from the work that you've done? Yeah. Yeah. And of course uh, I've spent, really in many ways a lifetime trying to coach leaders to be more able to include others and create psychological safety and with organizations like Qantas Airlines and others to uh, tell us, you know, to try to create a culture that is more friendly, if you will, to people's full engagement and bringing their whole brain to work and feeling like they're engaged and involved in decisions and can step up and take responsibility. And I like to think of stepping up as kind of a dance in an organization and the lead, the formal leaders are leading the dance, if you will. And so while people can step up, even if you're not leading the dance properly, if you really want the dance to be beautiful, you've got to, as a leader, be leading in a way that will make it more likely that people will take 100% responsibility and step up. And when uh, we did the first edition of Stepping Up, when I did it, we asked people, why don't you step up more at work? Different survey, same group of people, why don't you step up more at work? Number one uh, reason, I wasn't involved in decisions. Number two, uh, I tried to step up and I felt like my ideas weren't respected or I kind of got slapped on the wrist for like going outside of the box. Uh, third most common reason, fear of failure. Better to play it safe than to make a mistake. Mm. So I think as leaders, that's very instructive, right? And in the book, of course, I go in a lot more detail and in my work around how do you do that? But put simply, let's think of what's the antidote to those three things. First antidote is, as much as possible, can I involve people in decisions that will impact them to the maximum of my ability? Can I create an environment where people have solution space to uh, go outside the lines and when they do, to be coached rather than reprimanded? Second, can I create an environment where people feel their ideas are listened to? And most leaders uh, really have had very little training on how to respond to ideas, how to mm -hmm. do it in a way that it creates psychological safety. And then finally, how do I reward uh, effort, not just um, success? And fascinating research I share in the book that when people are rewarded only for results, they actually take less risk. When people are rewarded for effort, they take more risk. It makes sense, right? Because if I'm only rewarded when I'm successful, I'm going to play it safe, take as little risk as I can to make sure mm -hmm. I stay successful. But if I reward effort as well as results, then people say, well, it's okay to try and not succeed every time. Because as you know, the only way to succeed is to fail as well, mm -hmm. right? That's the prerequisite to success is to fail in most cases. So Again, a lot more we could talk about, but those are some of the things. So how do we give people a seat at the table? 
How do we create an environment of psychological safety where people can share ideas and make mistakes? And so those are the those are the key things. And one of my key principles in the book I got from Dennis Bakke, former CEO of uh, AES Corporation. He said, if you treat people like children, they will act like children. If you treat people like adults, they will act like adults. So if you want to know why most people don't take responsibility in your company, ask how much responsibility do they have? Because ironically, the more we give people responsibility and authority, the more likely they are to act responsibly. It's kind of a, a Zen riddle, I'm afraid. <laughs> and that, that takes us very nicely into talking about purpose revolution. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just gonna talk a little bit about some of the questions that you mm -hmm. provoked us with in, in the session that you offered. When you, you asked, because, and the reason that I think it's a nice tie-in is because all of that, how organizations work with their employees is part of the culture of the organization. And so the purpose revolution is really what is the purpose of your company, but also what is your purpose, your personal purpose? And you ask us questions about what is your someday? You know, somebody's saying, oh, someday I'm going to get those acrylic paints out. You asked, what do you really want to do in your life? You know, asking leaders, what, what do you want your legacy to be? And what do you want to be remembered for? Uh, you talked about the North Star and the question about really understanding why you exist as an organization. And I thought those were really, really important questions that certainly in the years that I've spent um, within corporate, I don't think are off, often, they're not asked often enough. Mm -hmm. You talk about the importance of personal purpose and finding alignment like really, and I, I've certainly talked about that in previous podcasts mm -hmm. about doing your research and looking at what the culture of the organizations that you're contemplating, giving your, your time and effort to, to make sure that those are in alignment. And you talk about the, the cure for exhaustion, you know, and we're all certainly feeling a lot of fatigue, especially with COVID, is wholeheartedness. Mm -hmm. That when you're doing your calling, mm -hmm. that... You can't help but have increased engagement, increased satisfaction, increased productivity, and decreased absenteeism. And I love, you use the example of Molly Maid. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your Molly Maid story. Yeah, yeah. First, Susan, what a beautiful kind of summary, uh, not only of, of, of my ideas, but of your ideas and what many of us have been talking about for a long time around purpose. Uh, we know that when people have a sense of purpose in their life, it, it's, it improves your immune system and you're more likely to have longevity and not experience dementia. We know that employees who work from purpose um, and have a sense of calling in the role they're in perform better on every metric that we care about as leaders from productivity and engagement to service to calling in sick less. We know that um, that purpose is a very important engine of getting through crisis. All you have to be is a student of biographies and you realize that when people have a sense of purpose, when they're focusing on what they give to the world, it's often the thing that gets us through crises. And I, I would bet a you know, million dollars that the people who've done the best during the pandemic are the people who focused on giving to others and being there for others instead of just themselves. And in the Purpose Revolution, I write about this revolution of the desire for purpose all over the world for employees to work for and from purpose, one out of three employees, 
uh, very focused on that. The desire of customers to buy good and certainly do less harm in their purchasing. And now the increasing desire of investors to invest in companies that are doing good and see not doing good as a major risk uh, in terms of, uh, of investing. And it's interesting, Susan, that um, my first and my ninth book were really about purpose, right? Awakening Corporate Soul and now the Purpose Revolution, where I, I really believe that not only is there a revolution, but that purpose-focused companies that focus on the real value they can add to, to their employees, their customers, and society have always performed better than those who didn't. And in the book, I give a prescription on how do you be one of those companies, as well as challenge people around their personal purpose. So lots that we could talk about. But, you know, um, I've seen again and again how leaders can take purpose and transform it into competitive advantage. And you mentioned Molly Maid. A few years ago, I got invited to speak, uh, as I do often, to uh, the, a franchise organization. So Molly Maid is a franchise organization, or they're all franchisees. So I'm speaking to you know a group of several hundred of their franchisees, and I said to the, the the folks running the meeting, give me the names of like four or five of your best franchisees, like the ones who are really knocking it out of the park. I want to just I don't know much about your business, so I want to learn about it before I speak to the group for half a day. Anyway, bottom line is one of the people they gave me was a twenty-something-year-old woman who had only been in the business for a couple of years, but like her growth curve was like off the charts compared with a lot of the other, you know, folks. So when I interviewed her, I said, so just tell me about your franchise, how you run it. She said, well, the first thing is, she said, this is not like glamorous work, cleaning people's homes. In fact, sometimes it's kind of nasty work, she said, and you work by yourself most of the time. So it's not like a lot of camaraderie. And she said, so when I hire people, the first thing I tell them is, um, you know, um, you're not just cleaning homes in my business. You're going to get to give people the greatest gift a human being could give another human being. And you're going to give them the gift of time to spend on other things that are really important to them in their lives, their families, their hobbies, the things they care about. She said, second of all, a lot of the people whose homes we clean are older people who live alone. Many of them may not see another person for several days, sometimes a week. When you go into their home, you have a chance to alleviate loneliness and make them a little happier. She said, when I interview people that I tell them that I watch how they react. If their next question is, so what are the benefits again? And how many hours <laughs> do I have to work? I know I don't want to hire that person. Mm -hmm. He said, the second thing is I constantly try to help my people see the real difference we're making in the lives of our clients. I bring in letters and stories from our clients. I bring in the families of my older clients who talk about how the relationship they built with that older person has made them a little happier and a little less lonely. She said, I asked them to tell stories about where they really feel they're getting to make a difference in their work. And she said, uh, you know, I do it because it's like, that's my purpose, but also because it turns out it's really good business. And I love that story because it's such a simple example of many things I talk about in the book, talking about job purpose, not job function, creating line of sight to the difference someone's work makes, asking people about their personal purpose and how they get to live it in their work. And when you're interviewing people, 
make sure you hire purpose-focused people who can live their purpose in the role you're hiring them for. Because I might be a purpose-focused person, but the role you're hiring me to doesn't align with my purpose. Mm -hmm. So again, there's a whole a beautiful hornet's nest or maybe a bee, bumblebee's nest, <laughs> honey, uh, but you have to read the book to get more of that because uh, we don't have time. But I, I, I'm so passionate around the importance of purpose in our personal lives and in our work communities and in our society. And in many ways, maybe everything I've ever written was about purpose, uh, you know, uh, personal and corporate. So I feel like it's, who knows, maybe the first and the ninth will be the last. Maybe I'm kind of I like, hope not. I, I hope keep not. saying that, but then something else comes up. <laughs> and, and I love the keeping the purpose alive, you know, and Molly made the examples about bringing people in to talk about their experience. And you talked about like in a staff meeting of saying, you know, what, how have you, how have you demonstrated our organization's purpose in the work that you've done? Yeah, um, yeah. talking about asking about purpose in performance reviews and, and setting developmental goals, um, just keeping alive and, and doing whatever you can when you're leaders to keep people's personal values in alignment with um, the same with the organization. Yeah. And, you know, to me, it, first of all, it all begins for me as a leader. You can't lead people where you can't go yourself. What is your purpose? What's the legacy that you want to leave behind? Day to day, what's the real difference you think you and your products and your company are and can make? And in the book, I try to take people down that journey. The second thing is get curious about the purpose of those who work with you and for you. Uh, one of the things I challenge leaders to do is to ask people what their purpose is. And be like, oh my God, most people won't know what their purpose is. Susan, I, I, I've tried it. I've spoken all over the world. I've asked people with only one minute to think about it. What's your purpose? Or what's your purpose in your job you choose? Mm -hmm. And then turn to your neighbor and share it. No preparation. Thousand mm -hmm. people sometimes, 2,000 people. Then I ask them after the buzz, because the room buzzes with people talking, right? Then I ask, I want to ask you a question. Raise your hand if... If the answer to this question is yes, leave your hand down if the answer is no, and don't game it. There's no right answer. I don't mm -hmm, care what mm -hmm. your answer is. Did what you share with that person a moment ago feel roughly right? Like, might not be perfect, not ready to put it on a wall and frame it under glass, yeah. but more or less it feels like that is your purpose. Raise your hand if the answer is yes. 80 to 90% of people with wow. one minute to think about it, felt they roughly got it right. So that's when I say leaders, when you think you can't just ask people, what's your purpose? Where do you get purpose in your job? You're wrong. 80, 90% of people have it. The other 10 or 15%, you'll provocatively begin to enter that conversation with them. I also love when you encourage us to catch people in the moment. When you did X, you demonstrated Y. And to be on the alert for, I think what you called it, congruence moments. Mm. So again, another another way of keeping it alive, uh, and also rotating the corporate values that um, say talking about integrity and how de integrity was demonstrated, and then move it to say service was another of the corporate values, and and just and I know we don't do that, or certainly not in my experience. So great, great ideas. 
Yeah, you know, one of my theories is, you know, I have a little phrase I use. People say what gets measured gets done. And I'm all for measurement, by the way. You know, I'm, I measure things. But I think it's actually a myth because I know lots of organizations that have measured things for years that haven't moved at all, or even moved in the wrong direction, even though they <laughs> measure them. What I say is what gets talked about and focused on gets done. Yeah. And so if we want more purpose, measuring it is good. We should measure purpose. You want more purpose, talk about it more. Ask about it more. You say you want your values to be lived. Well, then talk about them more. Mm -hmm. Ask people to share stories about when they got to live it. Ask people to identify some ways we're not living our purpose, where we might live it more deeply. What gets talked about and focused on and asked about gets done. Measurement is just a way of knowing if we're making progress. Measurement won't drive change. What we ask about, talk about, and, uh, and, and, and uh, communicate about, that's what will get done. Okay, listeners, you now know how <laughs> exciting it is to learn from this map. <laughs> John, we could go for hours, and I've got lots more questions, but I also see, that, um, see the time. And I want to make sure that, um, and you can tell everybody how dog-eared and lovingly highlighted <laughs> my copies of the books are. I can't say enough about the work that you've done, John, and everything that you're doing to create the WOW organizations that every one of us desires to work with in. Um, are you offering more book clubs or online learning? Um, I'm sure hoping that your answer is yes. And if so, can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, you know, well, first of all, if people want to kind of stay in touch, just go to drjohnizzo.com. That's just D-R-J-O-H-N-I-Z-Z -Z or I-Z-Z-O, drjohnizzo.com. <laughs> and it says sign up for tips. And if you sign up every two weeks, you'll get a video or a blog from me. And then you'll get to keep in touch around that. Susan, to that question, I had never done an online book club, never done an online course, period, until these last few months. And I just kind of was, you know, I'm doing a lot of work virtually now. And I thought, you know, what, maybe I should offer something for people just to sign up. And uh, it's been a beautiful experience. And I love doing it so much that, yeah, I've committed now at least a couple times a year, you know, every number of months to offer something. So I'm just thinking about what that next one is, but it's in our minds. So yeah, so if you sign up for tips at our site, and I've tried to make them really price, you know, it's like the money is not the point. It's getting to engage the price at such a low level that it's like, it was, well, no brainer to be a part of it. So, yeah, it was great. So, uh, and all of your contact information will be on the show notes for the podcast. So, um, wow. I have loved learning further from you. It is always a pleasure. And I know that I'm not the only one left with lots to think about and perhaps nuggets to take back to our work environments. Um, you're just your wisdom um, and the fact that you are prepared to share with the world is very much appreciated. Um, again, if you're interested in contacting John on our show notes, uh, we sure hope that you have lis enjoyed listening to us. John, do you have a, any last points that you want to squeeze in there before we do a closure? Yeah, you know, I think, first of all, Susan, thanks for your work and your own incredible curiosity. I think curiosity is such an important element of having a vital life and also making a contribution. So thank you for that and for your very positive uh, energy, which is, I think, uh, visible and contagious. 
you know, uh, I guess not really except to, to say, uh, you know, life is short, right? You have only one chance to uh, live uh, with as much joy as you can and leave as much contribution as you can. Uh, Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, said that um, uh, two of my favorite thinkers, Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, Viktor Frankl, the Auschwitz survivor, mm -hmm. um, they had two different views. Uh, you know, Joseph Campbell said, most people are not looking for the meaning of life. They just are looking for the experience of being fully human. They mm -hmm. just want to know they have lived their bliss. They have had the experience of joy. Now, Campbell was not against meaning, but he said, look, the driving force is to find your bliss and live it. Um, Viktor Frankl said the driving force of hum humanity was, you know, logos, was to have the experience of meaning to feel mm -hmm. that you had contributed to something lasting. And I think they both were right. So I say the way you really hit the bullseye in a human life is to experience as much joy as you can. Find out what your bliss is. Whatever it is, is different from any of us. And live that bliss. Every day ask, did I live my bliss today as much as I possibly could? The second thing is, what do you care the most about? And how can I contribute the most I can to that thing every day of my life? And I believe if you do those two things, you'll die a happy person, having lived your bliss and contributed the most that you could to the things that, that you ultimately care about. So I, I often use joy as an acronym for just open yourself. Ah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Be, a, be awake and aware and yeah. available for all yeah. of that. Oh, more nuggets. It's lovely. <laughs> I hate to say goodbye. That's but it is all, all great conversations must end, <laughs> even even a, a given human life, right? Oh, yeah. Mind you, there's always another conversation that you'll be having or someone else will be having that'll pick up where you left off. So yeah, yeah. And I we hope that you'll pick up where we've left off and actually implement some of the wonderful suggestions. Read the books, um, watch for John's next offerings, uh, either as a book club or one of his online courses. Um, I, we just both of us hope that you enjoyed today's session and found it fun to listen to. And if you have, please consider signing up for the podcast series, HR Inside Out, demystifying HR and people management on your favorite social media platform, and perhaps leaving a review so that others might benefit from the learning. I'll be back again next week. I hope you'll join me again as you, you guessed it, dare to soar. It's time for both of us to fly. John, thank you so much again for making the time to share your wisdom, a little bit about both your books and, um, and just be with us here today. Thank you, Susan. Both of us signing out. Hopefully see you next week. Bye for now. Well, we've reached our destination for today. Time to lower those wheels and prepare for landing. Thank you for joining me. If I said something that resonated with you, please subscribe to the podcast and to share it with others. It would be awesome if you also took the time to provide a review, whatever your favorite social media sites are. If you have a question or an area that you hope I'll cover in a future session, please send me a note, either to my website, www.effectingchangefromwithin.com, or to my email, susangene at gmail.com. I look forward to our next time together. In the meantime, soar high. I believe you can. Susan signing off. Thanks again for joining me.